Thanks for listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. Well, at the time of the release of this podcast, it's another year in the books. And don't worry, this isn't just a New Year's episode of the podcast, but as I record, we recover from the Christmas rush and get ready for New Year's, the back-to-back holidays keeping us on our toes. And while you may still be singing your favorite Christmas tunes, having heard them pipe through every sound system since we celebrated Thanksgiving at the end of November, it's time to practice just one song that usually isn't at the top of anyone's playlist. It's a song called Old Lang Syne. It's a one-hit wonder to play for New Year's, really the only New Year's song virtually, unless you count Prince's Tonight We're Gonna Party Like It's 1999. But for many, saying goodbye to the old year and ringing in the new is often accompanied by a song that most of us aren't totally sure what we're singing about. So we kind of do the da-da-da thing for most of the tune when the group rendition kicks in, then chime in a few of the lyrics that we might know, even if they aren't accurate. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne? But what in the world does it even mean? The phrase old lang syne literally translates to old long since. Basically it means days gone by or times gone by, or as Merriam-Webster puts the old lang syne meaning, the good old times. Though the nostalgic phrase old lang syne appeared in Scottish song as early as 1588, it's the title and key phrase of a 1788 Scottish poem by Robert Rabbi Burns, which was later set to music. As Scots immigrated through, around the, uh, throughout the world, they took the song with them, and eventually North American English speakers translated Burns' dialect into the common lyrics we know today, made most famous in part by Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians band, who performed the song on New Year's Eve from 1929 until about 1977, and that's the version that plays after the ball drops in Times Square every year. And though if you read the verses of the song, it basically talks about drinking away the past year, it's become an anthem for reflecting on times gone by, something we all tend to do at the end of another year. Some people get stuck in the past, not able to let go of things. Others will freeze in the past, not able to move on. Some still ignore the past, not taking advantage of the lessons they should be learning. And some people run from the past, not taking responsibility for the things that they need to. Leaving seasons behind can be a good thing. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul relished the opportunity to move past times gone by now that he was in Christ, considering his old life dead and pressing into the things that Jesus had for him, no longer tethered to the things that had been crucified with Christ. On this podcast, we look at what we might consider to be Paul's old lang syne. We just finished up a series in the book of Colossians as Paul writes while under house arrest in Rome to the struggling believers in Colossae to encourage them to stand in Jesus alone in all the world's confusion. On the last podcast, we saw Paul's circle and those the Lord had placed around him this season and those who would carry the letter to the Colossian church. Well, while the Colossian letter was meant for the whole church, on this podcast, we look at the short letter to Philemon, a letter that would be delivered with the letter to the Colossians. But it wasn't meant for the whole church, but for a few people that Paul knew there, a more personal message, but one that has takeaways for all of us, for sure. It addresses, in particular, the return of a runaway slave, Onesimus, who had fled his master in Colossae, only to end up in Rome and get saved. And now Paul is sending him back to his owner in Colossae his owner Philemon. 
but now as a brother in the Lord, as they're both believers. And Paul encourages them to let bygones be bygones, to put the past in the past, to hum the tune of old Lang Syne together, to let the blood of Jesus wash over the past and any wrongs and hurts that may have occurred, and to step into a new season together, applying the victory of the cross of Christ to the transgressions of the past once and for all. And with that, we'll charge through the brief one-chapter book in the New Testament known as Philemon. Philemon is the last of Paul's prison epistles that were canonized in Scripture, and this short letter, along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, all of which we've looked at on the Verbatim Word podcast, are the prison epistles. It's a more personal letter than the others that were written to the whole congregation, as we see in verses 1 through 3. Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writing with the help of Timothy. Notice that this opening lacks him identifying himself as an apostle. This letter arrived with the letter to the Colossians, where Paul said he was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God in the introduction. But that distinction is missing here, as he writes more as a friend. Imagine, the church has gathered and the letter to the Colossians was read publicly. Then as the crowd disperses, Tychicus, who brought the letter, says, Hey, Philemon, can you and your family and your home group stick around for a few minutes? Paul had written a personal letter to them. There was more to take care of that the rest of the church didn't need to be a part of at that point. To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Paul's friend was Philemon, someone who had come to the Lord under Paul's ministry at some point, as we will find out later in the letter. Paul also greets Aphia, probably Philemon's wife, which would be important since the woman of the house was usually in charge of the slaves, and this letter was in regards to the homecoming of their escaped slave, Onesimus who had arrived with Tychicus and the letters he carried. And Archippus, uh, he also greeted as a fellow soldier in the kingdom. The guy was also dressed in the clothes of the letters to the Colossians, where Paul wrote, And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Possibly leading the church that met in their home, something Paul was exhorting him to take heed to, to not neglect or let slide, but to make a priority in his life. Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus. What a blessing to consider a family serving Jesus together. Not every household is a household of faith. Many homes don't have God as their head, and they are serving their own needs and pursuing their kingdoms. In some households, not all the members are following Jesus. So those members who do have to balance serving Jesus and their roles in that family, which can be hard and is a reason the Bible tells us not to marry those outside of the faith. But for Philemon and his house... He took to heart what Joshua said in Joshua 24, verse 15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Christ was at the center of the home and the head of the home and the foundation of the home. Not every family begins as a Christian family, and it's beautiful to watch a family come to know Jesus. Sometimes it's through one of the spouses that they may come to faith. And through their witness and testimony and prayers, the others do too. Something Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 14, in which he says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. A blessing in that home, and the work of God with one believer, though that's hard. 
Other times the children come to faith and eventually the parents. And other times the whole family seems to come to faith almost simultaneously as God works to redeem families for him. What a blessing in Colossae that this family was serving Jesus together. Paul says to them in verses 4 through 7, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and, consol and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Paul is thankful for them and prays for them personally. Such a joy over the way they have faithfully loved God and his people. The two go hand in hand. Jesus charged Peter in John 21, asking him three times if he loved him. And each time the Lord then challenged Peter to feed and tend his flock, to take care of his people. And a healthy relationship with Jesus will always involve serving his people in some capacity, some role in loving on and taking care of the flock of God. It allows him to impart his heart to us, to become more like him, to understand his heart and his love and his nature as we enter into his labors of caring for his people, becoming the heart and hands and mouth of Jesus, though through whom he can touch others by his Holy Spirit, vessels and conduits for the ministry of Jesus to others, one of the privileges and callings of a faithful follower of Christ. Do you love him? Then feed his lambs, tend his sheep, feed his sheep. It's something that Paul was thankful for, that Philemon and his family were a, were a part of doing things together. I'm so thankful for parents that did ministry and modeled ministry, invited us into ministry, or maybe forced us sometimes to do that ministry, whether it was helping in Sunday school or hosting the youth group at our house or volunteering us to take over leading our younger sister's kids choir. But that's another story. Or taking us on mission trips where we would ultimately end up serving full-time ourselves. My family was not a Christian family in my youngest years, but I'm so blessed that when they did start following Christ, they took us along for the ride. In Oklahoma, sports are a huge thing, and sometimes on Sunday mornings as we drive to church, I see families, dedicated families and parents, out in the hot summer sun, first thing in the morning and all day at the softball field or the soccer field or the football field. Parents sitting in their folding chairs, rooting on their kids, being there for them. I love seeing that dedication and support. But then I love showing up at church and seeing families worshiping together, training them up in the ways of the Lord. That is a noble priority. And it is hard raising a family for sure and harder by the day in this world. But raising a generation of servants of the Lord is something that cannot be neglected. Philemon's family was doing just that. And Paul was grateful for their partnership in the gospel. And in the heart of a true friend who will speak the truth in love, Paul addresses the elephant in the room. Because when Tychicus arrived with the letter to the Colossians, he was not alone. His travel companion was Onesimus, Philemon's slave who had run away. I imagine the awkwardness of that gathering, the whisperings and stares and rumblings in the crowd, sort of like that awkwardness of having your ex show up someplace when you didn't know that they'd be there. Awkward. And in that social setting, perhaps the congregation had read the letter to the Colossians, and now the crowd has dispersed, and Philemon's family and Tychicus and Onesimus are left and they are reading Paul's letter addressing the elephant in the room. Paul turning to the point of his letter, verses 8 through 12. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Being such a one as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, 
who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart. Paul says, I'm not going to tell you what to do in this situation, Philemon, but the ball is in your court. Legally, you have a right to do something in this situation with your runaway slave. Since there were so many slaves in the empire in a fear that they could revolt, they made sure the punishments were very harsh and gave a message to other slaves. When captured, a runaway slave might be crucified or branded with a red-hot iron on the forehead with the letter F for fugitive. That was Philemon's right. But as Paul said in other letters, it's not always about exercising our freedoms. In fact, there are times the Lord will ask us to give up our freedoms in the name of love. So while Philemon could do that, Paul appeals to him not to do those things. And with Paul being an apostle, he could pull the authority card and command Philemon to respond in the situation in a way that is favorable to Onesimus. But Paul won't do that either. So he writes an appeal rather than a command, desiring for Philemon's heart to be right in the situation, for him to be forgiving toward Onesimus with a true heart, and not because Paul told him what was the right thing to do. Remember, Paul had come out of the law, and as a Pharisee, he knew you could do the right thing, but not with the right heart. And so Paul appeals to Philemon to let God soften and change his heart, rather than pulling the I'm an apostle, do what I tell you card, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And God is always into our hearts changing to do the right thing, above just doing the right thing, but with a reluctant, rebellious, or stubborn heart. And it takes time sometimes for God to change people's hearts, doesn't it? And we get frustrated and impatient and we want to just crack the whip, but God will take the patient route in hopes that the heart might change. Think of God's relationship with Israel in the Old Testament, so long-suffering and patient and hoping they change before pulling the trigger of judgment a sentiment that I think Jesus expressed shortly before going to the cross when he looked out over the city and said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. God will often go just a bit longer with the hopes that a heart might change. Though he could command it and demand it and force it, he won't. Honoring our free will, something he wants us to yield, to choose in our hearts the good and right things of God. Now, Paul is hoping Philemon will choose to do what is right, so he won't command it. Though I appreciate Paul's little prompts when he says that he was a prisoner and the aged, sort of a Philemon, do it for your old grandpa, will you? Saying, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I've begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. When Paul spoke of Onesimus being unprofitable and profitable, this is a play on words. The name Onesimus means profitable. This guy, whose name meant profitable, had cost Philemon something. It sounds like not only did he run away, but he might have taken from Philemon as he headed out the door. As Paul will tell Philemon later, that if Onesimus owes anything to charge Paul, not Onesimus, to put it on Paul's tab and to forgive any debt Philemon might owe. Now that he was a Christian, Onesimus could live up to his name, profitable, because everyone has value in God's eyes, don't they? Created for a purpose in God's divine plan, and while many will never discover that and live up to that, a life in Christ is profitable finally able to fulfill its God-given purpose. 
One thing about being married to a fellow educator is you can debrief and vent at the end of the day in a way that your partner can really understand, which I'm sure is similar if two spouses work in any related field. But Aaron and I find ourselves often venting at the end of a tough day, and especially when we first moved back to the U.S. and started teaching, because it was a lot tougher than we had anticipated. And I was so grateful that we were going through it together, because we could support one another. But unfortunately, we could also gripe to one another as well. And this was even heightened by the fact that in our first teaching jobs, we were taught at the same school and had many students that overlapped between us. And there were some students that could really cause a lot of headaches. And these kids came up in our daily debriefings quite a bit, especially the, those who would not do a thing in class. No matter how much we poked or prodded or threatened or encouraged them, just did nothing. And often we would say that they were worthless, not doing a thing to further their education. But one day as we were venting and discussing another worthless student who wasn't doing their homework or showing effort or striving to learn, I felt totally convicted, calling the kid worthless. Because in actuality, they have total worth, as we all do. So I said, we probably shouldn't call our students worthless, but maybe they're not living up to their potential might be better. And so we realized we didn't have any worthless students, but students who definitely weren't living up to their potential. In truth, we're all potentially profitable to the Lord. Oh, we might be worthless right now, but not fulfilling his purposes for our lives as he created us because we fall short getting sidetracked or off course or distracted, but in the Lord's eyes, he never sees us as worthless. In Christ, our lives are profitable, like Onesimus's life was, though Philemon might consider him to be worthless or that he had even cost him. He was once unprofitable, but is now profitable to both Paul and Philemon, a life redeemed in the Lord. And some of you were pretty worthless as well. But now your life has been turned around, profitable to God, something that his grace does over and over again in the testimony of the church, something God sees value in. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, when we were worthless, Christ died for us. And then the unprofitable becomes profitable for the kingdom. And with Onesimus now returned to his master, Philemon, Paul shares his desire for them both, verses 12 through 16. I am sending him back. I'm sending Anismus back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother especially to be, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, the relationship between the runaway slave and his former master is strained for sure, and Paul wants them to deal with that. But Paul also hints that he would like to retain the services of this escaped slave. Paul sends Onesimus back with the hope that Philemon will allow him to return to Paul again to help him. Onesimus is profitable to Paul. And if Philemon wants to send him back after they make things right, he'll be happy to take him but he won't command it or twist Philemon's arm, not compulsory, but voluntary. I love this humility of Paul. He doesn't pull his I'm an apostle card and I have a direct line to Jesus reasoning, and so thus saith the Lord because Paul himself has a desire. It can get confusing sometimes in spiritual circles. When someone you admire or respect or see has a lot of spiritual maturity, that their opinions or initiatives or takes on things are always what God would have you do. 
This can even be taken to extremes in so-called shepherding movements, where all of our decisions or perspectives are to be filtered through the authorities over us. This can really wreck and ruin to believers, though, in the long run. It's important for believers to begin learning to hear and discern the voice of God, and to be able to make decisions in life based upon what they believe God is saying to them in light of their circumstances. Looking to God's word, of course, seeking wisdom and counsel of other believers by all means, by applying wisdom based upon circumstances 100%, and by communicating with God in prayer as you seek his will in each situation. While Paul personally wanted Onesimus to stay and help him in ministry, Paul was humble enough to know that he did not have a monopoly on hearing God's voice. So he sent Onesimus back, but would let Philemon seek the Lord as to whether to have Onesimus stay and start serving the family again, or whether Jesus was calling Onesimus to serve in the kingdom by becoming a partner with Paul. God speaks through the Bible, circumstances, prayer, and the church, and that message should and will often line up across the board with believers who are truly seeking him. But we need to be humble enough to know that our own desires and perspectives can creep in if we are not careful. And before we say, thus says the Lord, or God spoke to me and he said, we need the humility and patience to let the Lord unravel his will and direction. And we may not always get every piece of the puzzle given to us. Others might be hearing from the Lord just as much. Now, one thing Paul wants to offer at this point is some possible perspective. As for Onesimus' departure, he writes to Philemon, For perhaps he, Onesimus, departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but both more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Paul says, in essence, what Onesimus did in running away was not right. He did wrong. He broke the law. But Paul says perhaps he left briefly under those pretenses, but the sovereign Lord was able to hijack the plan, even in his disobedience, and bring him to salvation in Jesus there in Rome, to now send him back as a Christian, a forgiven brother whose life was now sealed for eternity and profitable for the things of God. Paul looks at it all and sees how God has made beauty out of the mess, and that God had truly done what Paul wrote in Romans 8.28. And we, uh, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. God can work all things together for his good, even our shortcomings and fallings. And God used Onesimus' mistake, and Onesimus got saved as a result. Now, this is where our minds can begin to do mental gymnastics, can't they? Should we just be okay sinning then, knowing that in some of the th- those things God may fulfill his will? Not exactly. It's something Paul addresses in Romans 6, as many were fearful of his stance on God's grace. Like Paul wrote in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? No, we don't need to be entangled in sin, since Jesus has set us free from it. God can accomplish his will for our lives without us getting drug around in sin under the snare of the world, the flesh, and the enemy. And Paul looks at it again a few verses later in Romans 6. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. No, we do not need to sin or help God accomplish his his plans for our lives by sinning, or to go into sin having the attitude, well, God will work it out in the end anyway. 
but by his grace, he can and does often work all things together for good, redeeming even our follies and mistakes somehow for his good purposes, turning mistakes into ministries, transforming trespasses into testimonies, reworking wanderings into witness, because where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Paul sees such grace in Onesimus' life. Perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. There may be blemishes in your life that have, in God's hands, become blessings. And it is a powerful testimony of God's redemptive power. Paul had seen it in his life, and now in Onesimus' life, and you might see it in yours as well. And if you can't, if you are stuck in some place of wondering if and how God can redeem some mistake or situation you've made, give him your five loaves and your two fish, the scraps of a life or situation you are carrying around or ashamed of, and see what he can take and break and multiply in it. Paul saw the silver lining in Onesimus' transgression and hoped that Philemon would see it as well, that God had been gracious and he had been saved. Paul closes out his letter. He has said his peace, and now he must leave it to the Lord, for he won't be there to mediate the situation. He won't be able to add anything to it or work through the negotiations between Philemon and Onesimus in Colossae at the reading of this letter, because Paul is tethered in Rome, and he must give it over to God, trusting the Holy Spirit to work in the situation of two brothers in the faith whom he cares for very much. Trusting God to work in the lives of others is a huge test of faith, and we want to step in often and stick our nose in and make it happen. And God often can and will use us in some part of the equation, but in the end, it is God's work in them. And so Paul closes up his letter to seal it and send it off, trusting the Holy Spirit will use it somehow in the situation when it's opened. He writes in verses 17 through 22, If then you, Philemon, count me as a partner, Receive him, Onesimus, as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. It seems as if Philemon had come to faith through Paul's ministry as well. Paul saying he owed him even his own self too. Apparently when Onesimus escaped, he also stole something from Philemon. This was another crime punishable by death. Paul says essentially, put it on my tab, Philemon. He essentially did for Onesimus what Jesus did for us in taking our sins to his account, paying the debt of another to put an end to the division and wedge that had been driven. This is important to Paul. He grabs the quill from whoever is transcribing this letter and writes with his own hand, Philemon, please forgive Onesimus. And Paul trusts the Spirit will work and that Philemon will respond, that he will obey the call of God to forgive others, even as Christ has forgiven us. And let bygones be bygones, to bury the hatchet, to forgive and forget, to kiss and make up. This really goes against our nature and our world and society, where we are encouraged to make people pay, to hold grudges, to get reconciliation or recompense, to forgive but not never forget, to sleep with one eye open, and to keep our friends close but to keep our enemies closer. 
but the Lord can and does bring reconciliation. It's a specialty of the work of Jesus on the cross. And Paul hopes to show up soon personally and ask them to prepare a guest room for his arrival, confident that the Lord will see to his release from house arrest. But Paul puts a time frame on the things he's discussed in this letter. You guys, can you let it go? Let the past be in the past? Can you release your resentment and bitterness and hurt and anger? Can you let go of your need to be right or to seek out justice in the situation? Can you drop the accusations, tear up the lawsuit, expunge the record? Can you let bygones be bygones and start anew? And can you do it now? so that your fellowship can be renewed, and then that I can join in in the next season when I come there. Paul wants to encourage them to move forward, to forget what is behind and move forward to that which is ahead, to step into a new season. What a better time to let go and move ahead than with the new year coming. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, this is being recorded and released the final week of the year. Such a time to take inventory and to let go of what needs to be released to God so as not to hinder any blessing or new things that the Lord may want to do in you or through you in the coming year. As Jesus said in Mark 11, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against any, anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Giving it over to God, so that nothing becomes a hindrance in your relationship to him. It can be easy to blame shift, to attribute a lot of our frustration or failure or limitations to others. It can be tempting to resent, to hold others captive in our minds and hearts as reasons for our own misadventures or issues. It can be common to grow bitter, to hold others ever more responsible for our own shortcomings or circumstances or lot in life. Whether it be in marriage or ministry or friendships or jobs or society or even politics or even history. We have plenty of ammo to aim and shoot at others and are reluctant to wave the white flag, holding on to hurts. Sometimes we want justice and fear that letting go means that we'll never get served. We long to hear the other person to say sorry and we'll hold out until we get our apology. We feel it's only right that they admit all that they've done wrong and we won't let it go until then. We want them to prove that they've truly changed and are making more of an effort, or to see proof that they've addressed the flaws and shortcomings that have hurt or hindered us or handicapped us. But holding out for those breakthroughs may be something that we need to release, to let go. Those apologies or justice or, or signs of change may come someday, but on the other hand, they may never come, and you might be waiting in vain. So let go. And maybe God then will bring the opportunity after you've done the work on your end of turning things over to the cross of Christ and letting bygones be bygones. Paul, Paul calls these two men to a ceasefire at the foot of the cross, that Philemon and Onesimus would lay down their weapons to let bygones be bygones and to let the blood of Jesus run over upon them both. Because Jesus is sovereign over our lives, over our circumstances, over our situations. He can and he does work all things together for good. And nothing anyone does to us can circumvent the goodness of God. So whether it means God whipping something good out of something not good, or him shielding us from the weapons formed against us that won't prosper, there is room at the cross to drop it all there and to be free to move forward in the blessing of God. And Paul couldn't wait to see the reconciliation take place between these two men, Philemon and Onesimus.
And so we conclude this brief letter to Philemon, verses 23 and 24, with many of the same names we saw at the end of the accompanying letter to the Colossians, which we had on our last podcast. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul concluding yet another letter while under house arrest in Rome as he redeems the time he has there. One of his final instructions in the letter to Philemon, prepare a guest room for me, because Paul believed he would be released soon, and he was, and he was hungry for fellowship with the people of God. Something many may not be taking heed to, as in-person church attendance is roughly 30% to 50% lower than it was before the pandemic the Barna Group has estimated. But for Paul, in the next season of life, as God opened the door, he would seek out all the good things God had for him and make the most of every opportunity, something the house arrest in Rome had made him realize. Don't take anything for granted. You never know when it will be taken away. The writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as it is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. As we end another year, we know that the day of his return is ever closer, and so we are exhorted to consider one another to stir up love and good works, to not forsake the assembling together, to exhort and minister to one another, and even more as the day of his return approaches. May the Lord bless you as you step into 2022. May you be able to let go of anything he has already forgiven at the cross, and may you find opportunities to love and show grace in the body of Christ. And may he find you with your eyes looking heavenward ever increasingly as he makes his final preparations for his return. Thanks for listening to Verbatim Word. It's a blessing and honor to walk with you in each season God has put you in. God bless you.